We've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a few weeks. <laughs> You're laughing. I just, lo- I just counted up message 106. Isn't that amazing? been a fascinating journey though we're we're in the last week of Jesus on earth and that's why we've got the cross he's moving towards the cross even though we a little while ago did the whole Easter uh, Easter thing we're working our back way back to Easter again it's Wednesday morning on that last week just two days before the crucifixion and we find Jesus back in the temple, and in Mark's gospel, he says that Jesus went to the temple every day and preached. But of course, as we looked at a few weeks ago, he first went to the temple and cleansed the temple. And once he cleansed the temple, then he was able to preach and heal and minister. And he, pre- he was preaching so effectively and with such authority that the religious leaders felt they were losing control that their authority was being threatened. And seeing that the people were turning away from them and they were following Christ and, and staying with Christ, and they just they couldn't have that, and they, they had to find a way to put an end to it. But they're afraid of the crowd. So they can't just outright arrest him and take him out and stone him, which they would have liked to do and which they had tried to do in the beginning of his ministry. Instead, they decided to interrupt his ministry and his preaching, and see if they could sway the crowd against him by questioning his authority. And we looked at that last week. So they asked him by what authority he was saying these things and what authority he was using to do these things, hoping that he'll admit openly that he was getting direct authority from God. And that way they could charge him with blasphemy and all the people would hear it and they, they would sway towards them. But Jesus didn't fall for it. Rather, he gives them a parable to ponder, and that was the one that we looked at last week, a parable describing a father who wants his two sons to go out in the vineyard to work, and the, the first, uh, first one says, nah, I don't want to do that, and then later changes his mind and goes and does his father's will and works in the vineyard. The second one says, sure, Dad, no problem, be, be, I'll get right on it, and then he goes away and doesn't do it. And the conclusion of that parable is an indictment against the elite leaders as hypocrites. And being like the second son, all words, all show, but no obedience. And because of that, they won't be entering the kingdom of God. But Jesus isn't done with them yet. At the end of Matthew chapter 20, we read this, and this is our passage for the morning, verses 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented a vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent the other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He asked those that were listening to him. He will, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This whole section is an amazing statement and kind of the history of the whole Bible and God's plan and what he was doing. This is actually the second of a trilogy of parables. There's three parables that Jesus teaches, and this, this is the second of them. Uh, a parable is a way, of course, of illustrating a very simple, in common terms, a, a great spiritual truth. And it seems that Jesus always had an amazing way of telling these stories and telling these parables uh, in a way that just drew people in. He caught their attention, caught their imagination. And his manner of speaking always captivated his audiences where, where they felt that they were right in the middle of the story uh, and their emotions were involved and brought from them very strong reactions. And this was no different. He, he had the entire audience, the religious leaders who he was aiming this at, plus the multitude that was there around him as well, um, all, all listening. He had them in the palm of his hand, and we'll, we'll, see as we, we'll see their reactions as we go through this. Now, starting at verse 30, 33, we see the illustration that Jesus uses here, upon which he then bases the rest. Verse 33 says, listen to another parable. Now, he uses the the Greek word alos, which means another. Um, Means another another of the same kind. It's it's a fascinating, fascinating word. But he has just given them a parable about two sons. And here's another parable of the same, same style. But even more than that, that first parable was a parable of judgment. And here comes another one. And this parable as well is about judgment, another one of the same kind. Now, they've clearly shown their rejection of Jesus Christ, the leaders of the, the, the religious leaders there. And so in these parables, Christ is rejecting them. And these parables are powerful. So Jesus begins by setting the scene in verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another country. Okay, so far so good. This was a typical scene that everyone listening was, were able to understand because vineyards were all over the place in that area. Um, now, this seems to be an investment property for this landowner. Uh, so he was probably fairly wealthy. So he, he went ahead and he, he had the vineyard planted. He put some kind of a wall or hedge all around to keep out any wild animals or perhaps uh, thieves that would come in. 
then he put in a wine press for them to use. Now, the wine press could be uh, nothing more than a large rock in, in the ground that was hollowed out uh, to make a very shallow basin, very wide but shallow. Um, they'd fill that with grapes, and then they'd do their stomping. And then uh, there, there'd be a little trough that went into a smaller, deeper basin area. And as the grapes were crushed in the upper, upper section, the juice would then flow down through the trough into the other area, which would be collected there, and then they would go and take that and put it into the wineskins or jars or bottles, uh, whatever, or pots. Uh, very simple, but very effective. Then he built a watchtower, uh, which served three purposes, really, security, shelter, and storage. From the top, someone could be watching out for whether it's animals or thieves that would be trying to get, get into the vineyard. Um, it would be a place of shelter if, in case of bad weather. They, they could go and huddle, huddle, huddle under there. It was also a place that they could store their utensils, uh, their farming utensils that they would use in the vineyard. So the landowner, he took care of all this. Okay? He set it all up well. Then he rented out to tenant farmers and went away to a different country. Literally, he went abroad, uh, just moved away. Now, this was not uncommon. Uh, again, it was an investment, and many of them per- perhaps uh, apparently did that. He basically leases it out, making a contract with those tenant farmers there in which they would give him a certain percentage of the proceeds, whether it was in cash, whether it was actually grapes, or maybe it was the, the, the juice that uh, was, was, was made. And this all made sense to everyone who were in listening area of Jesus as he was telling this. Then in verse 34, he says, well, When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. Okay? As per their agreement. He sent a few of his servants, apparently there were three of them, to receive what was due him, whether it was cash or juice or whatever. And the servants came as, uh, in his name and with his authority. But then an amazing series of events takes place in this parable. Verse 35, the tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned another, the third. Now, if you take a look at the Gospel of Mark in his telling of the same parable, it tells us that the owner sent these three one at a time. Matthew just lumps them all together. The three of them went and they killed all three. But if you think about it, it's mind-boggling. I mean, this, this good man, this landowner who had given this piece of property to these people so that they could benefit from it, they could prosper from it, sends his servants to collect what, just only what was due him. He wasn't trying to extort anything from them. But apparently the farmers had become greedy and must have been talking together. This, this had to be premeditated. They had to have been talking ahead of time. And they decided that they, they just wanted to keep it all for themselves. And they weren't going to give anything up. And so they all had to be in agreement to attack these servants. The first one they beat, the word means to scourge, to flay, basically beat to a bloody pulp. The second one they killed, probably instantaneously, with a knife or some other instrument. The third was stoned, and the word that's used here uh, indicates that he was stoned to death. Now the other thing that's amazing is how patient... That owner was. I mean, seriously. And we can't miss this point because it's an important point to know about this landowner. After the first guy was beat up, I would probably have taken some serious action. 
He sent one, then the second, then the third. And then it says in verse 36, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Are you kidding me? Who does that? They killed them all, one by one. Now, this seems to indicate to us something of the generous, gracious, merciful patience of this landowner. As he continues to send these servants and they continue to kill him. Now, there are some critics that have said, well, this whole story is just so stupid. Nobody would do that. Um, This parable is so far-fetched, we can't even take it seriously. It's probably not even supposed to be there. Added to that, the fact that farmers would probably never have kept on killing over and over and over again. But that's the point. That's part of the point Jesus is making in this parable. The unbelievability of it, the heinousness of it is making his point He's making an extreme parable because in the application, it's going to be extreme as he's building to his application. And so they've killed all the servants. And verse 34 says, 37 says, Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Last of all. In Mark's account, again, in chapter 12, verse 6, it says, He had one left to send a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. He's tried everything else, and all he's got left is his only son. And he thought he, they'd probably respect him, if, even if they hadn't respected anybody else. And the word translated here to respect is anthropo, a very interesting verb. I looked up the meaning, and it, and it gives actually three meanings. To reverence or respect a person, to be ashamed, and to turn about. It seems like three totally different uh, meanings to that one word. But what Jesus was saying by using that word was that the owner sent his son thinking that out of respect for the fact that it was his son or the son of the owner, they would be ashamed of what they had done and they would turn their actions and turn their thoughts around. Isn't that kind of interesting? The one word. But no. Verse 38 says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now this was not a case of mistaken identity. They didn't think he was just another servant. They knew who he was. They knew he was the owner's son, and they got together and planned a premeditated murder. Unbelievable. But that's the illustration. And knowing it's a parable and how horrible this particular story was, they're waiting for the, con- the conclusion. There's always a conclusion. There's always a meaning. In a very traditional rabbinical way, Jesus leads them down the path to make them conclude the story themselves. Verse 40, Therefore, he asked them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? There's a question, and it begs an answer. This is not a rhetorical question. 
He's talking to those religious leaders. So with all their piousness and their pompousness and and their self-righteousness, they respond unequivocally and strongly, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give Him His share of the crop at harvest time. They had no idea at that moment they just condemned themselves with their own words. There are two things there. First is judgment. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And second is replacement. He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him share of the crop at harvest time. They are actually prophesying and they don't even know it. Now, let's keep that in mind. I want us to put a pin in that thought just a minute. We'll come back to it. But we're going to take a look at Jesus' explanation at this point. He explains the parable, but in a way that's not really obvious. And a lot of people miss what he's trying to say here. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? Now, that that was a very sarcastic question in the beginning. I mean, these were the the religious rulers. They were were the... the, uh, Professors of law, have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world does that have anything to do with this vineyard? It seems a little off the wall. It doesn't seem like much of an explanation at all, but, but actually it's brilliant. This is actually a quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The same psalm, by the way, that the people were singing hosannas to Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. It's a prophecy that Jesus uses to explain this parable. Now, the heart of what these verses here in Psalm, Psalms is saying is very simple. When builders want to build a building, they need a cornerstone. And as you know, a cornerstone is the most important stone of the whole building, the whole foundation, and um, because it, it sets the angles of the wall up, down, si- and sideways. It draws a line by which the uniformity of the building maintains itself. And if that cornerstone is off down the line, your building is going to be off. I've seen some buildings when we were in Africa that didn't have a cornerstone. And it's, whoa, all you had to eyeball that and know that was off. So a cornerstone was the most carefully selected of all stones. And those cornerstones at that time were massive stones. For example, the cornerstones in this picture, the, on the left, the right is actually a close-up of one of those. Um, it's on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount Wall in Jerusalem. There's eight of them, one on top of the other. Each one measures 40 feet long, 8 feet wide, 3.5 feet high, and weighs 80 tons. Now, for a little bit of perspective, 40 feet long, I measured this morning, from where I'm standing to the back wall of the church, 40 feet. For those who are online, if you started this... (laughs) Hopefully you can see this, and you go three, six, eight. Eight feet wide, three and a half feet thick. Those are huge, and there's eight of them. 
how they quarried that and how they moved. It's all one rock, each one. How they moved it is still a quandary. They don't know to put those things on top, 80 tons. And so in selecting one of those, they wanted to be sure that it was perfect. It had to be perfect because the rest of the wall or building was built according to it. And the psalmist says that there was a stone which the builders rejected, which means that the builders looked at at that uh, cornerstone and they decided, "Ah, it wasn't quite perfect, it's not exactly how we want it, Um, it wasn't the right stone, so we decided to reject it and they threw it away. But later it becomes the cornerstone. Who did that? The psalmist says, it is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, God brings back a stone that men reject and puts it back in place of the greatest importance. You may say, well, what, what, what's the psalm talking about here? What is that stone? Well, it actually refers to two different things. Psalms often does that as it looks, looks ahead. Historically, it refers to Israel. Israel has been rejected by most of the world over and over again. It was rejected. God brought them back. Uh, continues to be rejected, and particularly in the Arab world. This goes, uh, this goes all the way back to the sin of Abraham uh, in, the, in the conceiving of Ishmael, and the enmity, enmity between Isaac and Ishmael has, has been continuing on since way back then, all the way to the present. And we're even seeing it in the news today with the fighting of Hamas against Israel. And it's spilling over into our own country, unfortunately, in the anti-Semitism that we're seeing in the news. But one day God is going to return Israel. How and when? uh, That's in the Lord's hands. And according to the psalmist, it's going to be marvelous. So God miraculously keeps picking Israel up off the discarded stone pile and sticking, sticking it back into His plan as the key cornerstone. That's the historic aspect of this psalm. A small nation, apparently about the size of New Jersey, which continues to exist, is a cornerstone in the divine plan of God for redemptive history. But there was something far more significant in that verse, and you already know what it is, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. A lot of the psalms give us a messianic perspective. And in those messianic perspectives, there's a double fulfillment And there's something in that psalm that was intended to go far beyond the nation of Israel. And it talks about the one who comes out of the midst of Israel. If we look at Acts chapter 4 a minute, uh, we we see Peter and John, they're they're in Jerusalem and they're preaching and they've just healed a man who was lame. And those same old authorities, they're all upset at them. Uh, They... They arrested them overnight in the morning. They were brought before the elders, the teachers of the law. Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas was there, and Alexander, and others of the high priest uh, family. That's all written there in Acts 4. And they, were, they questioned them the same way they questioned Jesus. By what authority are you doing this? It's amazing. This man was healed, and they're fussing about it. By what authority are you doing this? And starting in verse 10 there in Acts 4, Peter replied, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. 
that this man stands before you healed. And then he says in verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So who's the stone there in Psalm 118? Yeah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. The stone which the builders rejected, whom God raised from the dead, has now become the cornerstone. The rejected stone is a crucified Christ. The restored cornerstone is a resurrected Christ. Peter has the same message in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Paul says, says it as well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, when he says that we are fellow citizens with God's people built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Remember, there were eight cornerstones in that building? Christ Jesus is the, the chief cornerstone. That's the one on the, on, the ba- on the base. Those other cornerstones are representing the apostles and, and, the, and the prophets. Now let's bring this all together here. So Jesus is saying, by quoting Psalm 118, that the stone is the sun. The builders in the psalm are the farmers in the parable. That's the parallel. That's why Jesus is bringing in this psalm. And as a farmer, just as the farmers rejected the sun, so the builders rejected the stone. And if the stone is Christ then the builders represent Israel and its religious leaders. And just as the builders rejected the stone who is Christ, so the farmers rejected the son who is Christ. They didn't approve of his origin. They didn't approve of his lack of formal education. They didn't approve of his disregard for religious traditions. They didn't approve of his choice of friends. They didn't approve of him at all. They rejected him completely on all counts. But once you know that the Son is a stone and therefore the Son of Christ, and the farmers have to be who? The religious leaders, the tenant farmers, the religious leaders of Israel and all the people that followed them. So all of a sudden, it began to dawn on them, oh my goodness. The landowner was God. The vineyard was the kingdom of God, a place of blessing. And the servants were the prophets. And what Jesus was saying to them was, listen, God, the landowner, planted this vineyard, a place of blessing, a place of salvation, a place of promise. And you got in that place of blessing, and you hoarded it, and you misused it, and you misappropriated it, and you robbed God what was due Him. And you never gave Him the glory that was due Him. And you never demonstrated the fruit of righteousness. And you never showed the fruit of righteousness. And you gave God nothing. When God sent his prophets to you, one after another, after another, after another, you killed them. A 
Tradition tells us, and it comes from Justin Martyr's book entitled Dialogue with Trifo, that they took Isaiah, the prophet, and with a wooden saw, they sawed him in half. That may be what Hebrews chapter eleven thirty-seven refers to when it says that men of faith were sawed in two. They took Jeremiah and threw him into a pit, and tradition says ultimately he was stoned. They rejected Ezekiel. Amos had to run for his life. Zechariah was rejected and stoned. And this was the norm. This is how they treated the prophets of God. A couple of chapters later, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 31, Jesus, talking to those same people, so the same religious leaders, says very clearly, so you testify against yourselves. That's what they just did here. You testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. This is what they do. They rejected the prophets, they rejected the Son, and they'll continue to reject. It continued in the early church. Saul, before he had that transformation uh, through Christ, Saul chased, chased down the Christians. It's continued down through the centuries around the world. Pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and other Christians being persecuted, imprisoned, killed. Still happening today. Do you know what else Jesus was boldly proclaiming to them on that particular day? He very boldly was proclaiming to him that he was indeed the Son of God. Not a prophet. Not even one of the best of the prophets. He was the heir of the landlord, the only Son of God, a claim for which they wanted him dead. They knew who he was. They knew by what authority he spoke, by what authority he did his miracles, but they rejected him because they wanted their own power and their own way. You know what else is interesting? Jesus is telling them to their faith that he knows that they're going to kill him. It's no surprise to him. He wasn't a victim. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says he lays down his own life. Notice, too, in verse 39 that in the parable they they took the son out of the vineyard and killed him. Even that's interesting because that's consistent with the crucifixion of Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 says, And so Jesus also uh, suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. The parable is so clear. Israel, the place of blessing. Israel, the place of salvation. Israel, the place where God poured out his goodness and his mercy and his grace. And when, they, when the people moved away from God and drifted into sin, drifted into selfishness, God, because of his great love and mercy and patience, as the landlord in the parable, sent his prophets one after another, after another, after another. And they hated them all, despised them, killed them. And finally, God sent his only son. And they took him outside and killed him. And then Jesus applies this parable directly to them in no uncertain terms. Verse 43, Therefore, and here it comes, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruit. 
That's exactly the same response the religious leaders gave to the parable back in verse 41, remember? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent a vineyard to other tenants. Remember, the first is judgment, the second is replacement. Remember back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, when John the Baptist was speaking to, to those Pharisees and he called them a brood of vipers? And then he admonished them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what you're supposed to be doing. What is that fruit? It's a demonstration of righteousness that comes out of a life that has been turned away from sin. And in our passage, Jesus is telling all those religious leaders that they never did that. And now they've lost the opportunity. And he is now giving it to another people who will produce it. What's he talking about? The rest of the world. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Their loss was our gain. As you come to him, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Then he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Folks, that's us, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you weren't Jewish, you weren't part of his chosen people. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. The people of God. Remember what Jesus said? The kingdom will be given to a people who will produce fruit. Folks, that's us. And all those with whom we share Christ and who turn to Christ. We are that nation. We are that people. We bring forth the fruit of righteous the repentance, the fruit of righteousness by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the new channel through which God can bring the gospel of salvation to the world that is so much in need of it. But that's only if we stand firm on Christ and on His Word. There are so many churchgoers today that get so easily swayed by the world by prevailing culture, by sentiment, by emotion, by feeling. Folks, all of that is like chaff that will be burned up and just blown away. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Lauren Daigle sings a song called Trust in You. And the chorus says, when you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish to walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust. I will trust. I will trust in you. 
And she goes on to sing, You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There's not a place where I'll go. You've not already stood. Is that who Jesus is to you? Is he your rock? Is he your foundation? Is he your cornerstone? Straight, solid, firm, never changing, the same yesterday, today, and forever, never moving. Can you, do you, trust in him? When everything around us seems like insanity, Jesus doesn't change. We can trust him And he's got us in the palm of his hand. As we close this morning, listen to part of Psalm 18. It's an amazing psalm. It says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a precious, a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, my Savior. Is he your rock today? Is he your cornerstone Do you trust in him with your life? Is your life built upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you that you are our rock. It doesn't move. You don't move. Your word does not move. Your word does not change. In all the things that are so confusing that are around us and and truths seem to be changing, uh, seem to change every day depending on the whims or feelings or the next, next whatever. Father, you, we, we can go back to your word. That doesn't change ever. We have such great assurance of who Jesus Christ is and, and what he is to us. And Father, if we find ourselves swaying at times, and it's easy to be drawn away perhaps. Father, get us back into your word. Speak to us. Remind us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, we know that we can trust in you. We can always trust in you. Because your will is good, is pleasing, and is perfect. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.